Hello, superstars. Welcome back to the Sorta Spicy series. As most of you all know, this is the series that we have created just for you, our superstar Patreon supporters of Sorta Awesome, where we're talking about some of the things that, you know, part of our lives that are just really probably not ever going to be on the main show. Some of these have been a little bit more serious. Some have been a little bit more fun and silly. The first episode in Sorta Spicy, if you missed it or if you're new to being a superstar, you don't want to miss this. This came out um, last fall. It was a story with my sister of her recovery in a 12-step program. My sister, Emily, who's a sort of awesome regular, talking about her journey into and through recovery in a 12-step program. So that one was a little bit more serious. Then Rebecca, who is joining me today, came and talked about romance novels. We had a great conversation. So many people loved that one, Rebecca. That was that was a gift to all of those romance novel recommendations. Oh, thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun, and I kind of want to do another one. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can make that happen. I mean, you have all of 2021 ahead of you with so much reading. Tell me again how many books you ended up reading this year in 2020. Um, well, I just finished another one. So now I think I'm up to 45. Yes. And yes. 44 of those have been romance books. <laughs> so good. So much good stuff. So much good stuff. And the great thing about the romance genre is like, like you've barely scratched the surface of what's out there. I know. I'm right? so excited. <laughs> All right. So you guys, today it's my turn. Um, I started off today by texting Rebecca this morning about how nervous I am about this episode. When we started talking about doing Sort of Spicy, Rebecca, I was like, what would I talk about? I mean, I knew that I wanted to do a Sort of Spicy and I, I knew that I needed to do one. But I was like, you know, golly, I just I feel like I'm such an open book. I talk about a lot a, a lot. I've covered, covered a lot of things in my life in five years of making Sword Awesome. Right. What would I talk about? Right. Yeah. That I never have talked about on the show, right? Yeah, but you found something. <laughs> I did find something. Um, so today we're going to be talking about my my original idea. I'm, I'm really nervous about this because this is one thing that I have had years long interest in that I pretty much don't talk to anybody about not my sister not my husband strangely not my friends but strangely I do talk to my daughter about it sometimes Stacy because she understands the universe that this lives in um but so I started with with this idea it, it actually occurred to me when Kelly and I were planning our self-comfort versus self-care series and I was like, you know, one of my, I was like kind of making a list of self-comfort that I've indulged in in 2020. And I was thinking one of my biggest self-comforts is reading fanfic. But I was like, oh, that, I can't say that on this show. I just, I felt so shy about it. But when I realized how shy and vulnerable and hand sweaty I felt about talking about it, that I was like, you know, that's probably a good topic for sort of spicy. So here we are, you guys. <laughs> Um, I'm just beaming because you are so nervous. I'm so nervous. <laughs> and I'm just giddy because I am ready for a full education. I, and Meg, when you texted me this morning and you were saying to me, I'm so nervous. I feel like this is really weird. I said to you, Meg, it's not a foot fetish. Like, it's not <laughs> that weird. 
And you replied back, but I feel like it is as weird as a foot fetish. And what did I tell you? What was I doing at the time when you texted me? You were at that moment listening to a podcast that probably exists in the Bachelor Nation universe, right? Yes. I was listening to a Bachelor-themed podcast, and it wasn't even about this season. I didn't tell you this. It was about a contestant multiple seasons ago. Okay. Like, Meg, we all have our things that we obsess over. This is totally Okay. okay. I cannot wait for you to school me on all things fan fiction. Yes. Okay. Well, like I was telling you before we hit record, I started out with talking about and thinking about like, how can I talk about fan fiction? And it kind of just like, it, it like unraveled into this bigger thing about just like fandoms and the dynamics of fandoms in general. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about fanfic. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff having to do with being a fangirl, being a super fan of something. I have a lot that I want to say, so buckle up, you guys. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But since in Sort of Spicy, we have been creating these episodes like they are regular episodes of Sort of Awesome that you would hear on Fridays. It's just that you get the real and true inside scoop from us. So we're going to go ahead and start with some awesomes of the week. Rebecca, what do you have that's awesome in your life right now? My awesome of the week is the Netflix show Love and Anarchy. This show came out in November. It was created in Sweden, and so it has Swedish, um, it's in Swedish, and there's English subtitles. I believe that it premiered, like, internationally, though, just this past November, and went straight to Netflix. So it's still a really recent episode. I would never share this on the main show because um, it is a bit racy, Um, Okay. So that's just a little disclaimer. There is some full frontal nudity. Oh, that's pretty (laughs) racy. Yes. Yes. Talk about spicy. (laughs) So, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be for everyone. I mean, the whole thing isn't like just constant nudity, but there, I mean, there are, there are some scenes. So here, here's the story. Here's the, the plot line. You have Sophie, and she is a married mother of two. I think she's in her 30s or 40s, and she is a businesswoman who has been kind of, she has like a consulting type of role, and she has been placed in a publishing house that is struggling with, you know, new technology and propelling them themselves forward uh, in all the ways that you know, like old businesses like print publishing are are dealing with. And so she's brought on as a consultant to help drive the team forward, make some changes, really analyze some things. And while she's there, she meets the young IT guy named Max. Okay. So Max stumbles across Sophie after hours at her desk doing a Mm -hmm. little um, self-comfort, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This took a real turn real fast. <laughs> yes. Now, I, I have to say, I, it was a little bit off-putting when I was watching. I was like, oh, whoa. This is, ra- this yes. Racy? Yes. This is racy. But I have to say, it that the self-comforting uh, tones down. So it's not, if okay. that makes you uncomfortable and it's a little too in your face, it doesn't stick around. Um, however, so he sees this, he witnesses this, and snaps a photograph. And then the next day... Um, it's not a super indecent photograph, but you can tell what's going on. So then the next uh-huh. day he corners her and he's like, so 
did you have fun last night? <laughs> and she, of course, is like, well, what, what in the world are you talking about? And then he shows her the photograph, which mm-hmm. obviously she's mortified. Yeah. He ends up somewhat blackmailing her into, um, you know, just simply honestly just buying her lunch or buying him lunch that's all that he asked for in exchange to delete the photograph okay so it's a little bit odd and it kind of ends up being this back and forth game that they play with each other of challenging each other to these ridiculous little dares and as you watch the more that happens and goes on you know they they're like uh pushing against societal norms and their impacts of these dares become bigger and bigger and involve more people. Their relationship sparks between them, um, turns romantic. And I would categorize this as a, um, like a, a, a drama comedy. So there okay. definitely are some fun office characters in the show. Uh, a little bit kind of like the show Younger, you know, that mm-hmm. I have raved about. There's some like side characters that you're like, okay, this person's a little quirky. We love, we, we learn to love to appreciate them for this little quirkiness that they have. And it is that sort of like office workplace quirkiness that it's just, honestly, it's just a lot of fun to watch. So the show dives into a lot of these ideas of, you know, challenging societal norms and like, what does it mean to be different? You see Sophie obviously struggling with her marriage and you see her struggling with the fact that her father has some mental health issues and, you know, how much of that is hereditary? What does it mean for her to have a father and to have grown up with a father with these mental health issues? And she's, right. she's battling all that. So it's not just all fun and games. But yet it is fun in games and yeah. also the depth. So I really enjoyed it. It's only eight episodes and they're not very long. Mm-hmm. I binged this in a ridiculously short amount of time. It kind of yeah. was like, okay, I'm not reading tonight. I'm not watching TikTok. I'm just binging this show. And I, yes. I watched it really, really fast. So I recommend it if, you know, the the warnings don't cause you to run for the woods (laughs) yes interesting interesting you know Netflix is so weird and their algorithm I mean I know they obviously focus in and try to serve you the content that you you know that they think you want but like I feel like I've never even heard of this and it's on Netflix and we watch a lot of Netflix and it's just like where have you been hiding this Netflix you think that I'm not up for love and anarchy (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I I think you might like it, Meg. Might have to check that out. Okay, so it's on Netflix, Love and Anarchy. Okay. Well, we have been kind of like playing around with the idea of bringing uh, Awesomes of the Week to our sort of spicy series that we wouldn't normally talk about. Now, I'm cheating a little bit. Sorry, not sorry, because my Awesome of the Week is not spicy at all, but... I don't have any other place I can talk about it because we've already recorded all of our episodes through the end of the year. So you guys are going to get to hear me talk about Taylor Swift's newest album drop. And that album, of course, is Evermore. So this just came out on December 11th and it was a surprise. So many people were still enjoying and just like soaking up and processing the goodness that was folklore that came out. Um, When was that? Like August, I feel like. I don't know. What, is, what even is time like in 2020? <laughs> exactly. Um, but so, yes. Yeah, so here comes this new surprise album, Evermore. 
And Taylor Swift said from the start that this is like a sister album to Folklore. And in a lot of ways, it really is. It is written, uh, she co-writes a lot of the songs here with Aaron Dessner, who she collaborated with heavily on uh, for Folklore. Aaron Dessner is from the band The National. And so um, one thing that's interesting about, I think, about Evermore is that the songwriting and the actual production is almost all Aaron Dessner, whereas on Folklore, it was Taylor Swift, Aaron Dessner, and then Jack Antonoff, who is her, you know, kind of like long, longer time music collaborator, like writing collaborator and those types of things. So yeah, she has said that they just couldn't stop writing songs once they've kind of like got into the flow of folklore and these stories started coming out in the in the storytelling of the songs for folklore that they just couldn't stop. So they're like, let's just keep going and see where this thing goes. So it's I do think that the fact that it's almost all um, collaborations with Taylor Swift and Aaron Dessner on Evermore give the album a little bit more like cohesive flow musically speaking I think um and I don't know I've I've seen a couple of critics say this I'm not my brain doesn't think critically about music enough to have picked up on this myself but a number of people have said you know folklore really I think it did come out in August and it really had that sort of like autumn feel but evermore is much more like you can there's like a winter aesthetic to it almost if music can convey a a seasonal aesthetic okay (laughs) okay sure well yes I mean watermelon sugar is definitely a summer song absolutely yes Yes. so I'm I'm following I'm tracking with you yeah and I don't know I just I love everything about this I I would actually say at this point now I've listened to the album through a few times now not obviously as much as I've listened to folklore but I do think I like musically speaking I think I like evermore better uh, if you were going to you know press me to choose one or the other I do think that the storytelling and the beauty of the lyrics on Evermore is it does go a little bit deeper um, on this album I feel like Taylor Swift really has gotten into a groove of being able to imagine characters and their stories playing out as she is writing these songs which to me is personally just like what What kind of music I like is so much more interesting than when she is like taking events from her own life and sort of incorporating them into songs. So um, it also has like, it feels like a um, kind of like a Patty Griffin, Dixie Chicks feel to some of it, which I just super love. I love that there's a true crime inspired (laughs) song called Nobody, No Crime. She has, I think she said on Twitter. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. So, okay, I haven't actually listened to the album, but yeah. there's now this, like, conspiracy theory that Taylor Swift and Harry Styles um, committed vehicular manslaughter, oh. like, in 2015. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this song was referenced in the TikTok I saw about it. It's like a whole okay. thing now. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to talk about that idea later when we're talking about fandoms because fans can come up with some cuckoo conspiracy theories, honestly. But yeah, so she said publicly that the Nobody No Crime song was inspired by the fact that she loves to listen to true crime podcasts. And I was like, Taylor Swift, let's talk about true crime podcasts. (laughs) That's pretty much all I listen to. 
So anyway, I just can't stop gushing about it. It's it's really beautiful. And again, the storytelling is just, I think that what really strikes me about the storytelling is it is about characters and like you can kind of get into the head and the experience of the character as they're, as the song plays out. But also it's not so specific that you can't relate. Like you can imagine your own self or people that you know. Okay. As the song plays out. So anyway, that is definitely what is awesome for me right now is this new Taylor Swift album, um, Evermore. Have so. you heard the theory that this is actually part of a trilogy? Oh, yes. On on Swift Talk, which is Taylor Swift TikTok, um, that's a huge theory. And I've seen a number of TikToks that are digging into her merch store and, you know, like, it's, it's like numerology level of conspiracy theory. They're like counting out the weeks between like, there is this many weeks between the release of Folklore and Evermore. And if she releases it, like, there's like, oh my gosh, these people are like, they could be, they could work for the CIA with their <laughs> unearthing of clues. It's serious. It, it? it is serious. Yeah. We all need something to be obsessed over. Yes, 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 yes. So anyway, those are our awesomes of the week for this sort of spicy episode. Okay, Rebecca, are you ready? I should, I'm, I think I'm ready. I'm not kidding you when I say, you guys, my palms are sweaty right now. And I am just like, my heart's racing a little bit. I'm going to try to be at peace. I'm going to try not to like rush my words and be a complete weirdo about it. Which is a perfect way to segue into our conversation because last night as I was preparing my notes for this episode, I asked Daisy, my 15-year-old, who has some pretty real experience with fandoms already because, hello, internet, Gen Z age kids and the internet, I was like, what do you think is the difference between just being like a casual fan of something and being like a fandom fan of a thing? And she was, I mean, she just like off of the top of her head, she was like, I think that if you are a casual fan of something or a person, you can just like talk about them like a normal, like in a normal conversation and be like, oh yeah, I really liked that thing. But if you're a fandom fan... I'm she starting to this. feel a little attacked, and you haven't even finished the <laughs> sentence yet. This was her absolute honest answer, and she was not even trying to be funny. She was like, if you're a fandom fan, I feel like you, when you start talking about the thing that you're into or you're a fan of, like you can't talk about it without being overwhelming or annoying to people around <laughs> no, you. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. oh, that's so accurate. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just started laughing. I was like, I think that's the best definition of a fandom fan I have ever heard. Um, but truly, like for Daisy, I'm just going to give a little context because for Daisy, when she was in middle school, she, so she didn't go to like just a handful of her friends from elementary went to the middle school she went to. So she kind of started all over with her friend group. And, you know, when you're in middle school, you kind of like, maybe you don't even really know what you're into. You're coming from elementary school and suddenly you're like in this bigger kid environment. And Daisy got into a really great group of friends, all kids that I absolutely love. And they were, you know, 
the, just kind of a little bit more of the nerdier kids, geekier kids. I guess geek is more like the word that, you know, people use more often these days. And they were all into anime, which Daisy had never even really been into or even had any experience with. But since all of her friends were in it, it kind of rubbed off on her. And so her first experiences of fandom um, came from like anime and animated series. And so she was discovering like Tumblr, I mean, for better or worse, because <laughs> Tumblr can be completely inappropriate for a middle schooler. Um, but she was discovering like fan art and um, you know, so she and her friends would sit together at lunch and they would all be watching these same animes, especially the ones that sort of come out, drop like in a series and they would just like binge watch it. And then they'd have so much to talk, 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 talk about at lunch. Um, and so that was really sh- where she got her roots in, in a fandom. And then as she got a little bit older, especially eighth transitioning into ninth grade and last year, she really realized that she personally, like she will watch anime sometimes and she likes to talk about it, but she feels like she's maybe more of a casual fan of anime but her big thing now is Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. And there's a specific YouTube channel slash, I don't know what to call them, group that does, that plays Dungeons and Dragons. It's called Critical Role. And they just record their, their gameplay of it. It'll be like four or five hour videos. And like people just watch these for hours and hours and hours. Well, Rebecca, the, so the name of this channel and group is called Critical Role, and their fandom community is called Critters. Oh, I, I don't think I like that name. <laughs> Isn't that so cute? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, so there's like, these are real people playing um, a tabletop role-playing game, but they have created, you know, there's people that create tons of fan art around it, and I'm sure there's probably fanfics around it, but it's like this really, you know, immersive experience into the thing that they're into. So I just thought it'd be interesting to talk about, so my main fandom that I'm going to that a lot of my experience in being a fandom fan is Harry Potter. So the Potter verse, which I know you're not really super into or familiar with. I, okay. I read book one with my children and we okay. started book two and we haven't finished it. Grace is really into Harry Potter. Okay. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm more educated than I was a year ago. I'll, I'll say that. Okay. So you at least like now have a baseline understanding of who some of the characters are. Yes. The world building situation. Yes. 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 This, this is noteworthy because I knew nothing for a very, very, very long time. Exactly. Exactly. But I feel like this has been a big evolution in your in your engagement with pop culture. I know. Right. I I still avoid spoilers because I'm still convinced I'm going to read them all at some point. But yeah, I've spent um, a very long time avoiding Harry Potter talk. This is so funny but so dive funny. in I'm ready for it just bring it okay well I thought you know if I, I thought it'd be really interesting to just kind of like talk about like why do fandoms exist to begin with and when I was doing some research for this I came across um, a note that the word fandom the actual word fandom itself was first used in 1896 oh okay 1896 in a Washington Post sports column that described the local fan base as the local fandom. So the idea of a fandom actually finds its roots in sports ball. 
well, it's some kind of athletics. Isn't I mean, that and that makes sense, I suppose, because when you truly think about super dedicated, enthusiastic, over-the-top fans, I mean, sports has to be at the top of that list. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so that was the way it was first applied um, back in 1896. Now, what's interesting is that the sort of like traits of what makes a fandom, like getting super into a thing, wanting to talk about it with people, really engaging with the text or the media that inspired it, that really became really popular in the early 20th century, um, so the early 1900s, with the rise of sci-fi, which at the time was very male-dominated. It was written by men, almost exclusively like for a male audience, And so as sci-fi began to develop as a genre of reading material, men like kind of found each other and gathered in conversation groups and I mean book clubs, if you will, to talk about these books and the short stories that were creating sci-fi. Women don't really start getting involved in fandoms and kind of creating spaces for themselves until like the 1960s or 70s, which I think is fascinating if you think about what was happening for women generally speaking, in our country, and our culture in the 60s and 70s, as we have the rise of feminism, of women really sort of claiming space for themselves in a lot of different places. So in the 60s and 70s, we, we, we begin to see women forming fandom spaces for themselves, still um, a lot limited to like sci-fi and other genre-specific like TV shows and movies. So... It's so fascinating to me because I think one of the reasons that people who are in fandoms kind of have a lot of like maybe shyness about it, maybe some embarrassment, is because the whole, the roots of it, besides the fact that it originally applied to sports, is kind of associated with like sci-fi, right? So it's kind of associated with people being kind of nerdy, the people who would not be into things like sports or other kind of like traditionally especially gender-specific things, right? Like yes. when I think of sci-fi, I definitely, although I know there are plenty of women who are into and love sci-fi, I do kind of think of it being more by men for men. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and those like, you, I picture like nerdy conventions mm-hmm. of people yes, like exactly. dressed up in- Yes, so you might think of like a Star Trek convention, yes, exa- right? Yes, exactly. And and I feel like Star Trek conventions have been the butt of jokes in pop culture like for years and years now. You are exactly right. You are exactly right. Which is why it, it, there's kind of, a, I feel like there's a process, there's a journey for a lot of people, including myself, and I'm fully in this journey of being able to realize like, oh, like, those people, those people <laughs> at the Star Trek convention, we're not so different, <laughs> me and them. <laughs> and I think it's a like a whole realization. And I think that some people, depending on a lot of factors in your life, some people like would fully like embrace that and be like, yeah, I'm totally one of those nerds. I will, I will own that. And then others are going to be more like, oh my gosh, like what's happening to me? Who even am I? You know what I mean? Like it's a spectrum, right? right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, I want to talk about some of the things that you might find in within a fandom, and then I want to talk about the different kinds of fandoms that there are, because there's two kind of like bigger categories. 
But if you live on the internet at all, you may already be familiar with some of these these things that exist in a fandom. Like you're gonna have things like fanfic, which again, this is this is where I primarily camp out. So this is where a writer takes characters or real life people, which we can talk about that here in a little bit. But mostly it exists around a created text or media. So a movie, a TV series, a book, a book series, whatever. They take those characters and even will even sometimes use the world that those char- characters exist in as the background. And they create their own stories, their own fiction. And so it's fan fiction. There's also fan art where whether they're hand-drawn or computer-generated, people create art that celebrates their favorite characters tumblr accounts uh tumblr fan accounts there's youtube accounts dedicated to fandoms and now of course there's fan talk like if you can think of a thing that exists in a fandom context you can find other fans on tiktok i promise you that (laughs) and again rebecca i think it's so interesting that you have things coming up in your tiktok feed that are like you know taylor swift stuff because i don't think i mean I don't know where you fall in the Taylor Swift question, but I, you're, you have other interests, but TikTok is like, hey, hey, you, you want to come <laughs> over to the Swifty, Swift talk? Yeah, yeah. TikTok keeps like sliding in other fandom possibilities for me. They're like, how do you feel about Chris Evans? Really? <laughs> like, oh, yes, yes. I, I so get funny. other like celebrity heartthrobs showing up. And TikTok is like, do you want do you want some of this one? And I'm like, no, no, I'm satisfied with Harry Styles. I don't need Chris Evans. Thank you. And yeah, that happens. I get a lot of TikToks about Taylor Swift also. Interesting. This is fascinating to me. You and I have talked about and probably will continue to talk about TikTok's algorithm for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yep. Put it on our tombstone. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. So I found this in my research and I think that I was like oh my gosh this explains so much about fandoms and I think this is so pivotal to your understanding of what we talk about when we're talking about fandoms this writer and I will link in the show notes because this this article it's on vox.com it helped me understand classifications so much but she suggested that there's two different kinds of fandoms the first one is like a curative fandom so people who like to curate stuff about the thing that they're a fan of so the other kind of fandom is transformative fandom and that's going to be a fan who likes to take the original media and transform it do play with it change it up so a curative fan if you think back to the star trek convention example those are going to especially like in the 60s 70s 80s 90s i'm sure even um before transformative fans would have been, you know, like welcome at a Star Trek convention. When you think about a Star Trek convention, the people who go there, these are going to be your curative types fans. These are the people who want to focus on the canon, which is to say the original content as it exists right now. So they want to focus on the actual media, the actual person that it was, you know, if it's a character the actual character as it was created, if it's a real person, the real person. So like real Harry Styles, not how I imagine that he is, but I just like really want to talk about him as he is, how he portrays himself in in the media. Or so an example of like curative fan might be like if you're a really big Doctor Who fan, 
you might like to make a list of like the best doctors in order, like rank the, uh, the doctors, best to worst. So you're just looking at the actual characters who are in Doctor Who. Okay, so as another example, something that comes to mind when I think of fandoms is <clears throat> specifically like on YouTube, where you might have a TV series and maybe one storyline within that TV series is romantic interest, like uh, a couple. And so then on YouTube, you'll have people who take out all these scenes about the couple and then they put it over top of like they put music over top of it. And it's kind of like this romantic uh, compilation video. Yes, exactly. If the couple is canon, which is to say if they are paired together in that media, they're they're together, then yes, that's absolutely an example of curative fandom. Absolutely. Okay. And I'm suddenly feeling a little self-conscious that I'm the only one who might have had these types of videos served to them (laughs) via YouTube's (laughs) algorithm. I mean, please tell me, like, uh, like everybody knows that these are available on YouTube, right? Yes, totally. Okay. I, okay. I went through a phase. Uh, this is just part of me. I went through a phase of uh, watching True Blood compilations. And okay. so, yeah. yeah and, mm-hmm, yep. I've seen those yeah. plenty of them. I, I watched a compilation on Love and Anarchy right before recording that was absolutely phenomenal. That's the thing. Like, curative fandom when Daisy and I were talking about it she was like it seems like curative fans like just don't have any fun like that would be so boring to not make up new things and I was like I don't think it's boring to them they love the material as it exists and so they are creative another example is cosplay so if you think about again Star Trek conventions or other like Comic Con or whatever curative fans are going to be the fans that do cosplay that recreates those costumes to the exact detail and that's fun for them like Mm -hmm. they look at the character as it was created they recreate those costumes for themselves and that brings them joy and pleasure if they got any of the details wrong or try to you know mash up costumes or do something to play around with the idea that would be very unpleasant for them that's not why they're there they want to do they want to create and have the experience themselves as it was created so what I was going to say about those compilation videos is there are really talented people who take scenes and they do these super cuts like you said they edit in music it's very powerful it's very moving um you know even thinking about the Taylor Swift fandom another thing that curative fans like to do is like look for easter eggs in things and so the Taylor Swift fandom comes to mind because oh my gosh Talk about people who will do deep dives into the text and try to think about. They're not changing Taylor's songwriting at all. What they are doing is looking at her lyrics, digging through her past, digging through references to other songs, and like figuring out how it all connects together. They're not doing anything to change the material. They're celebrating her as a songwriter. So those are some examples of curative fandom. Any questions before we move on, class? No, I, I, okay. I just have to say, I am like beaming listening to this because I, I, I am, I'm loving this. Yay, I'm loving this what? whole thing. Me too. I am, I am the number one audience. Like you, you couldn't have made this. I would, oh, I can't even form words. I would be so mad if you had done this with Kelly. I'm just saying right now. Okay. <laughs> This Sorry, is, Kelly. This Kelly, is, would, is, Kelly would be so mad, too. She'd be like, uh-huh, good. That, that's very interesting. I mean, I feel like I'm in a master class, and 
I didn't even know I needed this. I, I take that back. I did know I needed this. Do you know, I have a friend that I talk to on Boxer all the time, and we're constantly talking about the fandom of Harry Styles and, like, what it what it means, like, how this fandom actually works. So I'm, I'm here for this. I'm Yay. so glad it's me and not me Kelly. Too. And I need to – I'm excited to hear the next part because I feel like curative fandoms – that that is something that I feel like I have a lot of exposure to and a lot of experience yes. with. Okay. It's this next part that I just don't think I I know that much about. Okay. All right. So transformative fandom. These are people who engage with the text in some way that transforms, instead of curating, it transforms the original material. Now, Rebecca, you are probably super familiar already with the most like popular, most common um manifestation I guess you could say of transformative fandom and that's shipping shipping Mm. people who are not paired together in the original material so if you're unfamiliar with the concept of shipping or ships shipping comes from the term relationshipping and it is so shipping is the shortened version of that and it is where you as the fan decide oh those two characters that ended up together or that they're they're together that's absolutely wrong. No, 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 no. Who really should be a pair is this. That's called shipping. And we see this in all kinds of ways, right? In all kinds of things. This, I do feel like for the most part, and there are some notable exceptions, which we will talk about here in a minute. But for the most part, this kind of, <laughs> this kind of um, participation in fandom is like fictional. So this is like characters on a show, people in a movie, people in a book, characters in a book. Um, and, and the fan is like, I just don't know why the author can't see that these people belong together. So we need to stop right now and talk about my own journey into fan fiction, because this is how I got into fan fiction. So as you know, Rebecca, one of my very favorite authors on this planet is Rainbow Rowell. And the very first book I read by Rainbow Rowell is her book, Fangirl which is about a girl who writes fan fiction. And so in Fangirl, the fan fiction that's created is where there is a fantasy book series written by a British author, has two male characters who are enemies, and the story plays out from there, and they're, they're magic. And so it's kind of a parallel to Harry Potter universe, right? But Rainbow Rowell created it all. And when I read Fangirl and I realized pretty quickly, like the the, the source material that Rainbow Rowell was in, inspired by in writing Fangirl was the Harry Potter universe. I was like, well, I don't, what does that mean? And so I did some Googling and that's the first time I encountered the idea of dreary. So I, I need you to hold on for a minute. This is going to, this is probably going to ruin your reading experience with your children. I'm so sorry I have to do this, but it has to be talked about. Okay. (laughs) This is where I'm, my palms are sweating and now I'm blushing again. (laughs) This was the first time I ever heard about Dreary. And Dreary is the ship of Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter. Okay. (laughs) So there's the idea that it's very clear for, for fans of Dreary, it's very clear through in the text, like there's so much tension there. It's very obvious that this is the classic enemies to lovers 
storyline, right? Your face right now is how I felt the first time I encountered this idea. I was like, that is, I was scandalized. How? What? I just like set that whole idea aside. I was like, I'm just going to pretend like that, did, that part doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't exist in the universe. So fast forward a few years, Rainbow Rowell's novel Carry On comes out. And this is where she took the idea. I've talked about this on Sort of Awesome. Sorry to give so much review of this. But she took the idea of this fictional um, magic universe that she'd created for Fangirl and she like blew it up into an actual huge novel, young adult fantasy novel. Well, the two main characters in, uh, in Carry On, Simon and Baz, are actual like she she fully follows that thread of they are actual enemies to boyfriends. And so the funny thing is when I finished Carry On, I was like, I need more Simon and Baz in my life. Like, I can't believe this story is over. Now what am I going to do? And so that was when I very first searched for fanfic. I wanted to find more writing more that people had done with the Simon and Baz storyline from Carry On. That's what led me to the website Archive of Our Own, which is a huge, huge, huge compendium of people who write fanfic for anything you can imagine in the whole entire world. So when I read, because this was right after Carry On came out, there was like, I don't know, there was probably like 20 fanfics for Simon and Baz at that point. And I was like, well, now what am I going to read? So I went back and revisited this idea that had scandalized me prior of Dreary. And that is where I found my little corner of fandom of the Potterverse, which, again, I know is like so for, for people who are unfamiliar with or maybe just feel a little squeamish about playing around with different aspects of characters whether it's their gender or their sexuality or whatever or maybe it's just the idea of even pairing people together who clearly are not together in the text it's a little bit like why would anybody do that what is so fun about that I don't get it but this is a really interesting part of transformative fandom as I said earlier for many decades kind of since popular culture began to be a thing in our in our culture, a lot of the material was written by men, usually straight men, usually white straight men, right? So if you think about your, if you were like me and you had to take an American novels class when you were in college or whatever, if you think back to your high school reading, certainly if you're younger than me, you probably read more people of color and more women authors than I that were in my, you know, syllabus when I was a student. But transformative fanfic takes that exclusivity and says, well, we don't, it doesn't have to be that exclusive. These characters can be, um, you know, a different sexual identity. They can, there are people that take fanfic and completely do like gender bending on it. And so they, you know, swap genders for these characters and, and create things. They put them in different AUs or alternate universes where they just take them totally out of the context that they were originally written in and put them in like so they might take Potterverse characters and suddenly they're not magic they're just regular college kids and one of them works at a coffee shop and the other one comes in and that's how they meet and the story kind of unfolds from there 
So they take the original seed ideas of the the characters as they're created and they just play around with it they transform it and so this realm of fanfic specifically i'm going to talk about some other forms of transformative um fandom but this has been an area where women have really found a place that they can just have fun and write it's especially young women who do a lot of fanfic writing so women in their late teens or sometimes just regular teens late teens 20s on into their 30s that just want that creative outlet have found that they can take the characters and kind of write them not necessarily from a female perspective but give a sort of like women-centric treatment to the characters if that makes sense at all a little feminine spice yeah exactly exactly um it's definitely an area where people who identify as queer can come in and take characters and transform them in a way that if, that reflects their experience as a queer person whether they um you know just like what whatever that might mean for them because I know that to identify as queer is like a big umbrella and so like whatever that looks like for them they can take their favorite characters or their favorite storylines their favorite plot points and do some transformation in a way that feels satisfying to them, that feels enjoyable to them, that feels like now I can really fully imagine this character in my world and how I experience life. So I would say that shipping characters is probably one of the biggest inspirations for fanfic. Um, I enjoy Dreary Fix a lot. Another ship that I enjoy from the Potterverse is Dramione, which is... Draco Malfoy and Hermione Granger pairing, um, which again, there's just really very little tension really even in the text for that. But then fic writers will just like take that idea and just completely play with what that could look like. Any, almost any fandom, especially a fictional fandom that you can think of, people have looked at the characters and done, created some kind of ship that is completely not part of the original text. So there's that. Well, I have a question. Yes. So, and maybe you're going to talk about this, but how do you find quality fan fiction specifically to read? In terms of, you know, I think you could probably scroll a hashtag of fan art and very quickly see, you know, things that you want to tap on and look at and look at closer. But to dedicate time to actually read something and something that could be actually quite lengthy, I imagine, that the the length can really vary a lot in these. Mm -hmm. How are you finding quality stuff? Because when I hear fan fiction... Yes, you think it's crap. Yes, I think think it's it's written by like a fifth grader and it's like not good. (laughs) Well... To be fair, that exists. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. So how like how do you find the cream of the crop? Like where do you I'm gonna tell you ha- Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you how it works for me. Again, I like to read on a website called Archive of Our Own or AO3 if you're in the community. And they let you filter by a lot of different things. So you first of all, you can filter by by the um, source material so you could go directly to like you can find carry on by rainbow Rowell. you could click on that and then from within that you can kind of skim through because every single fic at least on archive of our own i know there are other places there's wattpad a lot of fic lives on tumblr i know there are other platforms that have their own systems where you can filter through i'm just speaking to archive of our own um 
you can filter then. So if I click on carry on, I can look specifically in the tags for the, the Simon Baz pairing. So I click on that and then it's going to give me all of these fix, you know, like hundreds of fix. If you're looking at a Harry Potter fandom pairing, there's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So then you can click a filter and sort by. And so on archive of our own to give somebody like a heart is called kudos. So you can click by kudos, for example. So however many people read it and gave it a heart, it's going to move that up into the top of that, that sorting list. You can sort by number of comments that were left. You can sort by how many people bookmarked it. So you can bookmark fix that you love. You want to go back and read later. So you can search by bookmark. For me, sorting by some of those filters, especially kudos and bookmarks, helps the best rise to the top. And so some of those books, you are right, some of them are very long. Some of them are literally novel length fix that people have written. Some of them are written by actual authors who write under anonymous usernames uh, on these platforms. Um, and some of them are every bit as engaging and fascinating. I have cried actual tears, become emotionally invested, cried actual tears in some of my favorite fics. Um, I, there are fics that I read that were so good that I will still think about, like I'll just randomly, it'll pop into my head and I'll be like, I need to go reread that. It was so good. It was so good. Now, I also go through phases with this. Does that make sense, first of all, and how you find the good ones? Yes. Kind of like, you know, social proof crowdsourcing type of yeah exactly exactly yes and that was kind of one of the plot points I think I kind of intuitively knew that because that was sort of one of the plot points in fangirl as Kath the main protagonist who writes fic um it, like in Rainbow Rowell's description of like how she did it like the number of comments and those types of things helped me to understand like oh this is how people find the fanfic that they want to read um so there's that I will say that I definitely go in cycles with fanfic. Sometimes I'll be like, listen, Meg, you are 43 years old. You have a degree in English. You need to read some real published <laughs> books. Shut it down. And I will make myself be a responsible adult for a while. It's the English degree for me. <laughs> Yep, exactly. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, because of that, like if I get like, I don't know, half of a chapter into a fic and it's really bad, I will just be like, no, that's bad. And I'll just move on. Again, in the Potterverse, there's a, there are thousands of things that you can read. Um, But yeah, if it's bad writing, I do not waste my time. But I will sometimes be like, no, you need to come on, be a functioning member of society pick up a book, do your brain some good. But in 2020, I was like, I don't want to read a book. I don't want to do anything. I'm just trying to survive. And so the, the, the siren call of the fanfic came back to me because it was so comforting. I, I didn't even actually read any new fanfics. I just went back and like read some of my old favorites because they're Aww. like so comforting. Okay. So. I have another logistics question. Okay. So you're reading these on a website. Yes. Is, is it, does it have an app? Uh, you can't read it on your Kindle? Is it like it, you have to read them, like full-length novel on a website? Yeah, I mean, I do. There may very well be an app, and I just haven't looked into it. Um, I just read them in a web browser on my phone. So 
And then yeah. it, you don't ever lose your spot. Like, how do you get back to it if it if it's long? Some, but not all. If it's long, they the writer will break it down into chapters, and so there'll be like a hyperlink as you return to that um, link. You can be like, oh, okay, I picked up. I need to pick up in chapter four, and you can just click on the four, and it'll take you to chapter four. Not not everybody does that, and I've read some really long ones that did not break down into chapters, which is very obnoxious. But I would just scroll till I find where I found where I left off. It's pretty primitive technology honestly (laughs) okay but no that's helpful to know yeah okay okay so some other kinds of transformative fandom again are going to be like fan art because again this is where people take their favorite ships that they've come across in their fandom and they either create for themselves or they like to see what other people create that's fan art those fan videos I have seen more than a few dreary video compilations on YouTube a big one that I forgot to mention in curative but this exists in both curative and transformative fandoms is the idea of like meta discussions and that's again that's kind of what Taylor Swift fans are doing as they are combing through the text of her lyrics it's that meta discussion of like taking the thing and doing close reads on something well in transformative fanfic people that are really into meta conversations will look at the source material and try to make a case for their thing here's a very famous example the bbc has a series you may have heard of called sherlock holmes um it is obviously Sherlock Holmes and um, his friend and confidant and roommate, John Watson. So um, a couple of years ago, was this, I can't remember. It's been some years ago. I cannot remember exactly. It's been in the, in the 20 aughts. There became this really strong movement. First of all, people have shipped um, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson together forever probably even since the original source material came out (laughs) when Arthur Conan Doyle was writing it. Somebody somewhere was reading it, the text that way. Um, But that pairing is called John Locke um, for John Watson and Sherlock Holmes. When you put those names together, get John Locke. So there was this huge sort of controversy in the Sherlock Holmes fandom because somebody, and I cannot remember the exact details of this, but somebody had taken like pretty much like every scene of this BBC series had broken it down, had like listed, like it was like tens of thousands of words that they published on the internet, all pointing to the idea that the creators of the show were trying to subtly signal to the fans that by the time the Sherlock Holmes series ended, that John Locke would be canon. That would be a real thing, that they were really going to pair Sherlock Holmes and John Watson together. And people got super invested in this. And they like really, again, this was just a fan. This was not a show creator. But they would not only take like scenes from the Sherlock Holmes series, they would look at what the showrunners had done on their other different shows and like ways that they had lied to the fans or misled the fans all to keep this, the this surprise thing a surprise. And so they were like, they've done this before. They know what they're doing. They're misleading us. But this is, it's all pointing to this. Well, then the series comes to a conclusion. And the creators of the show who had been absolutely very clear that they were never going to make John Locke canon, they didn't do it. And the fans like freaked out, the fandom fans, the ones who are really invested in 
John Mike just like had complete meltdowns. This actually happened very recently at the end of Supernatural, which is a show that I watched, which was 15 seasons long. There's a male male ship in Supernatural that people were convinced was going to be together at the end. They weren't. Fans lost their complete minds, like would badger and yell at and get so mad at like tweet at the the actual actors who are portraying these characters they would lose their minds on them on twitter it was it's Stacey told me as we were talking about this last night she was like don't forget to, t- to talk about toxic fans and I was like oh yeah I think I've had a little adjacent experience with that with like supernatural because people like get so involved and so invested in these ideas a lot of times it does have to do with ships that they are into that they when the when the thing doesn't become real it doesn't become canon they lose their complete minds over it so super fascinating that's a thing you may have seen that too in some in the harry styles fandom in terms of not necessarily around a ship but just like toxic involvement like i don't follow comments on harry styles's posts or whatever but from what i understand like people like if he was dating someone or if the woman was somehow adjacent to him in any way that the fans would come after and attack her um say terrible things about her to her those types of things so that's kind of like the problematic part of fandom well yeah for sure i people they get really really invested (laughs) yes Okay, so anyway, let me let me fit, say a few more things on this because there is one more thing that I really want to talk about, and we've been talking for a while now already. Um, so cosplay, people, again, taking these characters and playing around with the idea of their costumes, like doing some gender switching, um, race switching, those types of things, making entire fan films, um, fan comics, coming up with fan theories, anything that you can think of that would allow a person to support or defend or expand on or discuss or celebrate the fandom that they're into, people have done it. And I do think that that's one of the biggest things I want to say about fandoms is for a lot of fans who are really into their fandom, you've even said this about the Bachelor Nation experience, it's because the the source material itself, like you just want to keep experiencing it. You just want to still be part of it. You don't want it to end. So for Bachelor Nation, there are the podcasts, there are the discussion boards, the subreddits, all of these things where you can keep engaging with that material. Some people like to do the, you know, talk about and experience the material as it is. Some people like to change it, but it's all in an effort to get to continue the experience of enjoying the thing that you love so much. So the last thing I want to talk about that's really important, and I feel like I've kind of touched on it a little bit, is the idea of the, the gender politics that comes along with fandoms. So again, when you think about the fact that, um, Originally, fandoms were kind of male-centric. Again, the idea around like sports teams and people being crazy, crazy, really obsessive fans about that. Um, Even individual players memorizing baseball stats and those types of things. It was a very male-centered realm. And that was, that's a pretty socially acceptable thing to be a fan of, right? Like, yes, it's like the number one socially acceptable thing to be a fan of. Exactly, exactly. So we don't, you know, they're, if you know a sports super fan, like, they're not embarrassed to tell you, like, 
I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Like you walk into their house, there's Dallas Cowboys paraphernalia everywhere. There's, you know, signed pictures, like anything you can think of. They have no shame in that, right? Yes, wearing the baseball cap and like nodding to the guy across the parking lot. Hey, you catch that game last night? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 loud and proud for sure. Exactly. Exactly. So then you have, you know, you move away from that one degree and you look at the like sci-fi fandoms, again, mostly male-oriented. It was like still, you know, for people, and I don't have any direct experience, so I am largely going off of how pop culture treated people who are, let's just say, Star Trek conventioners. Like, they were fully themselves, especially, you know, like the men who are into that. Like, they would go to the conventions. They would be like, this is what I'm into. I'm really into Dungeons and Dragons. This is, you know, I'm going to talk about this. There's not really a lot of shame around it. Um, and again, a lot of those are curative fandoms. When we start to get into transformative fandom, which is a much newer um, development, it's a much newer evolution of experiencing things as a fan, this is where we start to see critics and pop culture writers and people coming out and talking about how this kind of fandom is like dangerous. This kind of fandom is possibly like illegal because you're taking someone's characters and you're you're playing around with the characters and it's unethical, that it's immoral, especially slash um, fanfics, which are slash is going to be like a non-canon male-male pairing. There's also fem slash, which is uh, non-canon female-female uh, pairing. And so as it moves into the realm of transformative fandom, guess who makes up most of the people in that fandom? It's women and it's young women. And so we circle all the way back to conversations that we've kind of already had that from the time we are discovering who we are and who we are, what we are into, how we identify in the bigger culture, we start getting these messages that the thing you are into is silly. The thing you are into doesn't matter. The thing you are into isn't real art right? And so you start to see all of this messaging starting to be applied to transformative fanfic. I found something that was so incredible to me, Rebecca, that really drives home the fact that our culture cannot help itself but to minimize what young women are into. This is a passage from uh, something that was written in 1864, by a pastor, a man who was a pastor. This was when the literary format, the novel, the fiction novel, was really becoming popular in our country. So in 1864, this pastor wrote, I have seen a young lady with her table loaded with volumes, loaded of fictitious trash, pouring day after day and night after night over highly wrought scenes and skillfully portrayed pictures of romance, until her cheeks grew pale, her eyes became wild and reckless, her mind wandered and was lost, the light of intelligence passed behind a cloud, and her soul was forever benighted. She was insane, incurably <laughs> insane from reading novels. <laughs> I cannot, I tried to hold it together. Can you believe what the that? Heck is Oh, for Pete's sakes. 
Which again, oh, as an English major, I took an entire collegiate level class called the American Novel. <sighs> like by the time, you know, men started writing novels, right? So when you have the American novelist coming in, it sort of like redeems the, the context. And then, oh, now it's academic and now it's important. And now this is real art and real literature. Um, but again, I just, that paragraph is so hilarious, but also like, wow. It's our, bad. It's bad. Exactly. Our culture just cannot help but to make women, especially young women, feel silly or, or feel like they're doing something dangerous by loving what they love. And so I just think that this is such a hugely important thing to say about fanfic and about fandoms in general, because again, the vast majority of fanfic writers are women. Some identify as totally heterosexual, um, but they find these slash pairings um, to be very fascinating, very interesting to write. They they have a point of view on it. Some of these writers um, identify as queer, and they have their own reasons for transforming the material the way they do. But again, I think the fact, I think it's very clear that the fact that this is a realm that women get into and that young women create things in immediately our culture is like, oh, well, that's dumb or that's dangerous or why would you waste your time with that? So anyway, I just think it's all very fascinating. We have the power within our own homes to break this cycle, to transform the way that we treat young women and what they love. You know, I saw a TikTok, (laughs) shocker, um, about Harry Styles and – It was so good. So this teenage girl was videotaping her dad and her little brother. They were in her bedroom, and they did not know that she was videotaping. And she's kind of chuckling a little bit to herself, but her dad is scolding the young boy. The boy's probably, I don't know, he's maybe like 8, 10. And she has a full-size uh printout of Harry Styles like one of those big cardboard cutouts of Harry Styles and the dad says so serious to the boy if you come in here and punch Harry Styles one more time you're getting your video games taken away oh. this is Im- this is important to sissy yeah. and we are not going to disrespect what she likes yeah and i was like a Men, slow clap. Let's let's honor and celebrate what people like and stop trashing on it. And we can have those same conversations with our own children in our homes to yes. help encourage our kids. It's okay to love what you love. Let's not let's uh, what, what does Aaron Moon say about um uh, stomping on what people like? What yes. did she say? Stomp oh. on your I want to say stomp on your ding dong, and that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I can't remember, but I do know what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. It's so true. And I have been, I've tried to be very, very sensitive to that as well in conversations with my daughters, especially like with Daisy. She's into things that I have zero interest in, absolutely none. But I have tried to like really listen and like kind of match her enthusiasm as she's talking about things. Um, and never make her feel bad or silly or like the thing that she's into is like immoral or dangerous. And she like had, she like did a lot of critical thinking to herself of, 
like getting really into Dungeons and Dragons because she knew that a lot of like Christians were kind of felt like it was actually dangerous, like it was actual witchcraft. It's just a game. And so we've had a lot of conversations around that. It really does engaging in a fandom, especially with material like that really does. um, It allows kids to like really have some critical thinking about the things that they're into. So, you know, I do have to note that of course, Harry Styles has his own fandom controversy, (laughs) which I heard about on the podcast reply all years ago about the Larry controversy pairing um, Harry Styles with Louis Tomlinson. Did I say it right? Is this... You did say it okay. right, yes. <laughs> His former One Direction uh, band member. But talk about a kind of toxic part of the fandom in the sense that people got super, super, not all Larry shippers were toxic about it. Some just enjoyed it. But they there there was definitely an element, from what I understand, that got super obsessed with the idea that Harry and Louis were secretly boyfriends, that you if you watch, if you slow down videos of their interviews, you can see the looks that are exchanged, you can see the casual touches that linger, like all of these things. Talk about making fan videos about it. And, you know, it just became a whole thing where I actually do, I know that this is probably not why the band broke up but I do wonder if that part of the fandom did add to like some of the tension that might have kind of unraveled things for the fans I don't know well they I don't know which one of them has said it on like officially but they have gone on record to say that it it caused a strain in their relationship like, between the two of them, at least. Yeah. And I can totally see it, because they say, like, they would read into any little thing that we would do. And I wa- I've watched these videos, and they are they are really reading into every little thing. Like, right. Harry can't look at Louie during an interview without yep. it being, suggesting some, some deep infatuation and love there. Um, it... it yeah, and talk about to- toxic fandoms. Like, it, it really does make me, it kind of makes my heart hurt for these really, really young boys years yeah. ago who just had this budding relationship. Friendship. Friendship. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, let's say it's true. If it's true, let them live their lives, you right. know? If they yes. don't want to be public, then, you know, but I don't on the right, I don't think it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately what we're saying is people love what you love, but just don't be toxic about it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I feel like I have revealed one of the deepest parts of my life, one of the most secret parts that I have held so close to the chest for so long. Um, so superstars, thank you for letting me trust all of this to you. Thank you, Rebecca, for enthusiastically listening and participating in this conversation because I really, I mean, this is just like the tip of the iceberg of how much I could talk about fandoms and how much I love them. Like even like the fandoms I'm not into, I just love that fandoms exist and that people love their things so much and they're so creative and so like deeply immersed in a universe and in a text. I just, I love that people love things that much. It really is beautiful. Yeah, it is. We all need to seek joy in something. So it's, it's beautiful, truly. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Well, superstars, again, thank you for letting uh, me trust this to you because this is, this is definitely part of my life I've never talked about before, but now hundreds and hundreds of our dearest friends know. So, (laughs) 
Okay. Well, Rebecca, if anybody wants to talk about Harry Styles fandom or any other fandom, where can we find you all around the web? You can find me all across social media at Simply Rebecca and, of course, at SimplyRebecca.com. Okay, you can find me at Sorta Awesome Meg. I'm always up for fandom talk or about anything else. Superstars, thank you so much for your support throughout 2020. This has been a year where we have just come to appreciate you all, our community, so much more deeply, which didn't even seem possible. But now it's like, I feel like we've been through a thing together. So mm-hmm. thank you for bringing your light and your awesome to 2020. We couldn't have done it without you. So thanks for listening. We'll see y'all next time.